Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Mona Morshed, Chief Executive of Generation. They are a global nonprofit supporting adults to achieve economic mobility. They provide training, they provide placements into careers that individuals would normally find inaccessible. And they have a very interesting formula, a way of operating. So we're going to look into that and understand how they've achieved the success that they've achieved. They've helped over 70,000 individuals already, and the number is growing. We're also going to be looking at the challenges, especially faced by those who are mid-career, say individuals who are 45 and over in age. Uh, they constitute a big chunk of the long-term unemployed, and there are many misconceptions about individuals with mid-career, and in actual fact, they add a great deal of value. So we're going to be looking at all of this. Stay tuned. You'll find the show very interesting. And without further ado, Mona, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. You're out there in the East Coast in the U.S. I'm here in the U.K., so we haven't had too much of a time difference. I'd love to find out a little bit more about Generation. I know you're the chief executive. What's Generation all about? So Generation is a global nonprofit. And what we do is support adults to achieve economic mobility. And we do that by training and placing adult learners of all ages into careers that would otherwise be inaccessible. Um, so we began our work in 2015, and we now have 71,000 graduates across 16 countries. And we have an 83% job placement rate within three months of program completion, and that reaches 90% uh, at six months post-program completion. And most importantly is what happens in terms of income. Um, so our graduates are typically earning three to four times in income uh, after generation versus what they were earning before. And cumulatively to date, they've earned about $630 million, which should hit a billion dollars next year. And where do you operate? Are you based uh, exclusively in the U.S.? Do you operate globally? So we're in 16 countries. Um, so we are a virtual organization, if you will. Um, but we're across uh, the U.S., Latin America, Europe, Africa, APAC, um, very much part of what we were trying to demonstrate from the beginning is a method that could successfully support adult learners to achieve economic mobility in a way that was truly global. And the only way you can learn that is if you are in many different countries and you can understand what is universal versus what is context specific. Yeah. And what does that method look like? So if somebody is uh, listening to this and thinking that sounds interesting, what does it actually look like? So we have a seven step process. Um, and the seven steps are a package deal. If you pull out any one of them, then it, the method doesn't work. So essentially, we begin by mobilizing jobs with employers for our graduates. And just to give you a sense, we currently have about 9,000 employer partners across our countries, small, medium, large. Um, and if you look at the last 12 months, 67% of our employed graduates were hired by repeat employers. So the first thing is get the jobs. The second piece is then to recruit our learners. Um, and we recruit them through a multitude of means. 
but the common thread is to always find the profiles that are different from what employers would typically hire because that's how we make the pie bigger and enable opportunity. Then our learners experience a four to 12 week boot camp that used to all be in person and now is either virtual or blended. Um, and it's profession specific. So we work currently across 35 professions that span tech, healthcare, customer service, skilled trades, and green jobs. Um, that boot camp is really designed to give you repeat and intensive practice so that when you have your first day on the job, you just slide right in, right? You're able to operate at the level that is necessary in order for you to not only do well, but thrive in your job. Um, in parallel, we have social supports, so mentorship um, and a variety of other supports for our learners. Then once they complete the program, they interview with our employer partners, and we really strive to have demonstration-based interviews. So what I mean by that is um, most of our learners, or nearly all of our learners, they come to us without having any background in the professions in which we are training and placing them. Um, you know, 90% are unemployed when they come to us, over half are long-term unemployed, which means six months or more. Um, and so the only way they can really demonstrate dexterity to our employers is by showing them that they can actually do the job. So it might be a hackathon, it might be a role play, it might be um, here, here's my code and check out, you know, it, it could be any number of things, but it has to be demonstration based. And then once our graduates are on the job, we continue the social supports and particularly the mentorship. And then that creates a ton of data. Um, we now have 23 million data points across this entire journey. And that data helps us to make the next cohort better and better. So those are our seven steps. Excellent. I love it. And these learners, they can be, what, what age might they be? Uh... Anywhere from age 18 to 65. I mean, we are, you know, so essentially you have to be of working age in the country, um, right? Um, but essentially, uh, we began with a focus on youth, which is typically ages 18 to 29. Um, and then a few years ago, we expanded to also including mid-careers. And the reason we did that is if you look at the long-term unemployed, particularly in the OECD, you know, 40 to 70% of them are age 45 plus. And so in many ways, they face, you know, even more daunting challenges with, with, with regards to shifting careers. And so our learners today are, as I said, anywhere from age 18 to age 65. Excellent. You have a lot of insight and research on that slightly older demographic, mid-career, people who who struggle, I understand, a lot more when it's time to find a job than, than somebody who might be 20 years old. Um, what are you finding? What are the insights that you have into that reality uh, for that older demographic? So several things. Um, I think first is that there isn't enough attention in the world being paid to age 45 plus who are seeking to shift career. Um, like I said, they represent the majority of the long-term unemployed in many countries, but when you look at the programming and you look at the research, there isn't as much um, on how to support this community, which is why we began to get into this. Second is that um, there is a massive amount of employer bias when it comes to reflecting on the potential of a mid-career to be able to shift into a new profession. 
You know, so for example, if you were working in retail and now want to go into tech, or you were working in logistics and now want to go into a green, whatever it might be. Um, and so we did a global survey um, in 2021, where we surveyed um, unemployed mid-careers and unemployed uh, age 18 to 44, so that we could get a, a counterfactual, if you will. We also surveyed mid-careers who had successfully switched careers, and we surveyed employers. You know, so all, all in all, we had about you know 4,000 people in our sample um, across eight countries. And so one of the most striking things we found is that when hiring managers receive CVs and they're screening them, they found that only 15% of the mid-career candidates, age 45 plus, were viewed as fit for purpose to even have an interview. Hiring managers would much more prefer those who are in their late 20s, early 30s when they are screening. So then we said, okay, um, what, ha what has actually happened with those mid-careers that you happen to have hired who are in an entry-level job or a mid-level job? And what we found was 87% of those people, those current employees, were performing as well, if not better, than their younger peers. And 90% had the same retention potential, if not longer, than their younger peers. And so it's one of those moments where you're like, okay, so here's how you're screening, but here's actually how the population is performing in the role. And let's just take a minute and reflect on why we see this. And it can be really insidious. You know, it, it can be everything from in job descriptions. We're looking for a fresh, agile perspective, you know, which is often code for we're looking for someone who is younger. Right. Um, and so it's really important to reflect on what is the potential that different individuals of different ages can bring to the workforce and what are the appropriate ways to understand the potential that someone has because the reality is that the usual recruiting algorithms or screening methods are unfortunately screening out a mm. lot of the mid-careers mm. and these mid-career cvs resumes that you mentioned uh, a high percentage of them are viewed as not fit for purpose it's not that they're not fit for purpose in terms of a technical aspect of their cv it's just more the 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 bias of the of the recruiter is that fair to say? What is it that makes them not fit for purpose, or at least perceived to be so? Um, so when you get a CV, uh, typically you will find that it'll say, you know, I graduated from X institution in this year, and so it may not say your age, but you can obviously impute what is the age of an individual. Um, and yes, it'll have the experience, it'll have um, you know your past work experience as well, what you studied and so on. What we were finding is that it's not simply, it's not just a case of the technical skills because these are also entry-level jobs. Um, and so they're, they're saying for those candidates who are applying to me for whatever is the entry-level job, we're finding that only 15% are fit for purpose, irrespective of the technical side. And so there's only so many things you can see on a CV, like you can't see someone's behavioral skills, you can't see someone's mindset, 
you simply see the cues on the CV. So we're actually doing, we're in the midst now of doing, um, we're about to launch follow-up research so that we can also try some A-B testing so that we can better understand what is it that recruiters respond to or not. And more importantly, what would change their mind about a particular candidate? So in about six months, I'll have an even more, more granular answer for you. I'm looking forward to that research already. Um, and tell me a little bit about what might make the hiring manager apprehensive about a mid-career hire. Is it uh, concern about whether that individual would fit uh, into the culture? Is it whether they would uh, be easy or difficult to manage by a younger manager? Or what are the sort of things, if you have insight into that, that, that might make a recruiter apprehensive about a mid-career hire? So it's multiple things. I mean, one is... Uh, are they going to learn fast enough, right? You know, so there is a bias about what is the learning curve of a mid-career individual versus someone who is younger. There is a bias about digital fluency and the extent to which someone who is mid-career has that. There can be concerns about, well, will they be willing to be managed by someone who is younger than they are? Um, and certainly to your earlier point, there are questions about fit, right? You know, what is, will this person fit with our culture, which is obviously a bit amorphous and, it, you know, it's kind of all of the above. So these are, these are the dynamics that we see. Now, I will say um, it, the reaction, though, also varies by profession. So when you're in the healthcare profession, and it's particularly for a patient facing role, where maturity can be important and empathy can be important. You can actually find that there can be a positive bias towards those who are mid-careers and a negative bias towards those who are younger because they are, again, incorrectly perceived or can be incorrectly perceived as being not as mature. If you look at the tech sector, there you see much stronger biases about mid-careers of, okay, well, you know, tech, we are fast moving, you've got to be agile, et cetera, you've got to learn really fast, what will the mid-career be able to thrive in this environment? So, you know, and, and we see that in our own data, you know, so when we are training and placing mid-careers into tech roles, we typically find that at three months, it can be, you know, somewhere between 50-60% job placement. And then once you get to six months, then we get higher, you know, we can get to, you know, the 70s or thereabouts, but it's not as high as it is for our younger graduates. So we also see it at work. And that's one of the reasons also why we're very keen to engage in this, because the reality of aging demographics is we live in, in an intergenerational workforce. We've got to figure out how this can be productive for everybody. Fascinating. And these, uh, what's well, really interesting that the different sectors, different verticals view uh, the benefits or or detrimental attributes of, of somebody's age uh, differently. What are they telling you in, in terms of feedback? Because you have all of this research and you're telling them, look, in actual fact, when we look at the older demographic, the older folks that we've placed, who who we placed, uh, they're, they seem to be performing equally or better um, presumably companies being rational actors to some extent, or at least wanting to maximize their their their, uh, their bottom line, should look at that research and say, well, maybe our bias is something that's detrimental to our bottom line. 
So that's very much the type of ROI case that we seek to build, right? Um, and so with our current set of employers who have hired also a critical, they have to have hired a critical mass of graduates so that you can actually show, and it's not just a case of one, but they've hired 10, they've hired 20. And now we can show, well, look at how they're performing relative to their peer group. Um, and so that is very much the campaign, but, you know, obviously, there are many employers across the world. Um, and so it's it's very much a case of one employer at a time to be able to uh, spread that type of a fact base and try to support changes in hiring behavior. Yeah. But look, if it's evidence-based and your statistics are robust, um, presumably companies should, should see your arguments favorably, right? I mean, again, I mean, the fact that 67% of our employed graduates are hired by repeat employers is in and of itself evidence of being able to shift how hiring happens. You know, in some cases, it's about, we, we've been talking about mid-careers here, but, you know, also for our younger population, um, we have those who have secondary school degrees and they're getting into jobs where typically college graduates are hired, right? Or it's females getting, you know, being able to be hired and placed in jobs that are traditionally male dominated and so on, you know? And so we're very much seeking to move the needle with our employer partners to recognize the alternative profile, whatever it might be, can perform as well as the usual recruiting pool. And so let's open the aperture so that we create more opportunity across the board. What's the uh, legislative landscape look like? And well, you're based out in the US. Uh, I know here in the UK and in Europe, a lot of the times people are no longer uh, putting the year of graduation on their CVs. Uh, there, there are moves actively taking place, especially within professional services firms to even uh, conceal the the name of the university that somebody went to because it might perpetuate certain things. Um, what's what's the state of affairs in terms of the legal landscape and what information you must or mustn't or could disclose on your CV and and whether that's the pendulum's moving in the right direction on that? Um, so that varies massively by country, obviously, um, and also frankly by employer and what hiring process they have. Um, we have tried age-blind CVs um, in the past, and but more importantly, what we seek to to do is like through the demonstration-based interviews. You know, sometimes we just say, "Look, forget the CV. Like, forget the CV. Just focus on the the portfolio of work. Look at the portfolio of work, and on that basis, decide." whom to interview. So I would say, yes, there have been cases, and you you may have heard of um, many years ago, there was uh, this famous uh, orchestra research. Have you heard about this? But es es essentially, um, orchestras were finding that they were hiring many more male musicians than female. And so what they decided to do was they put carpet in the hallways so that you couldn't tell from the gate or a click of a heel whether it was male whether it was a male or a female musician and then they hung a curtain so that the the panel of judges if you will couldn't see the person performing and so when they did that the number of female musicians who were hired into orchestras went up significantly this is just to say you know finding ways 
to really focus on the quality of work that someone is able to do. What, you know, whether it's portfolio or whether it is, um, you know, looking through someone's, whatever it is, that has to be the direction and path for all of us. And that's, and that has to go beyond legislation. I mean, that has to be, we actually believe that is a better way to assess someone's skill set and their fit for the role. Fascinating. I love the example. And is there a way on, on your side, and maybe there is, um, you know, I don't know, somehow that you can conceal the person's age even during the interview process. So they're trusting you uh, with um, with figuring out that at the end of the day, what the result is going to be at the end is going to be the right one. So we are very much experimenting with the portfolio approach, right? You know, so it's portfolio first, candidate second, if you will. Um, but at some point, I mean, obviously they must meet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Um, but the question is just get like, how do you get your foot in the door? Like, how do you get selected for the interview? What is the impression that you have before you see the candidate such that it's informed by the quality of work and not by a piece of paper? Yeah. Yeah. And tell me a little bit about the process or the journey for these uh, learners to find you and sign up to to your boot camp. Uh, what's your uh, pipeline origination process? Are you connected with career services? Are you connected with unemployment uh, services or charities? Or how do people find you on the learner side and then also interestingly on the corporate side? Um, so all of the above. Um, and we experiment every day to try <laughs> to, try to find new channels. Um, so on the learner side, um, sometimes it is, as you say, um, collaborations with workforce agencies or unemployment agencies who can spread awareness of the program. Um, sometimes it is through social media, um, because often now uh, the stability that one has is their cell phone in many ways. Um, and so uh, so that's the second way. A third, um, particularly for our younger learners, uh, could be collaborations with school districts um, or with the education system. So those who are graduating and aren't going on to post-secondary education or to a job. Um, but honestly, and, and then also just collaborations with other nonprofits who are serving our learner population on complementary needs. So it could be um, food security, for example, or housing security. Um, the most important and strongest channel, though, are referrals from our alumni. Um, so once we have established critical mass in a given location, um, our alumni are the strongest ambassadors. Um, you know, for example, in in Kenya, um, in our program in Nairobi, we so that one of the largest alum areas is Kibera, and about nearly eight, 10% of youth in Kibera have now been through Generation Kenya. Um, and so word of mouth and referral is hugely important for us as well. And then on the employer side, we try all different kinds of things, um, you know, so from the outreach to industry associations, to um, having employers refer us to their channel partners, we try many, many different things. Um, for us, jobs is the rate limiting step to our growth. I mean, we could train all day, but that's not the point. You have to mobilize enough jobs. And so we will only take people into our programs based on the number of jobs that we've mobilized. So we're always looking to find more and more employer partners. Excellent. Uh, tell me a little bit about the revenue model and the different stakeholders there. Sure. Um, so our goal is for the program to be free for our learners. 
Um, and so we are we fund our programs through three main ways. Um, one is through employer payments. The second is through government funds that go towards workforce programming. Um, and then the third is through philanthropy. Great, great. You mentioned the uh, the alumni uh, who've gone through your your program. And earlier you'd mentioned about mentorship and mentors who are an invaluable component of the, of the puzzle. Tell me a little bit about those mentors. Who are they? Do some of your alumni eventually become mentors themselves? What does it look like? So mentorship for us, like we have multiple models. So sometimes it, they are individuals who are on staff for in our generation countries. Sometimes it is um, actually it's alumni who serve as mentors um, to the current generation of generation. Um, sometimes it is what I'll call professional job mentors. You know, so for example, you're in a digital marketing program and we've mobilized a set of digital marketers um, who will help and steer you. So think of mentorship as there are things that help you with your personal life and your situation. Um, and then there are mentors who will help you with success in the job interview and potentially while you are still on the job as well um, to give you feedback and support. Um, but just speaking more broadly about our alumni, um, so we do surveys of our alumni every year. Um, so now we have feedback from our alumni even from six years ago. Um, and so uh, one of the things that really strikes us is that something like 85-90% want to give back to generation in some way. Um, and so there's a really powerful force to harness. And also what's really important about our alumni is, you know, this is how we demonstrate the durability of the outcomes. Like that's what we look at to say, like, did, you know, were we helpful to support someone to change their life onto a different trajectory? So we know now that from our alumni from two to six years ago, 70% continue to um, be able to meet their daily financial needs. 40% are able to save for the future. We know that for tech professions, which now is about 40% of our graduates, um, you know, 80% plus are able to meet their daily financial needs and 60% are able to save for the future and so on. And so that durability is what for us is really important to assess whether what we're doing is effective for our alumni, which now are 71,000. I love it how you have so many, uh, so much data you give me so much insight into into what the world looks like for you. And uh, as you engage with the alumni, I imagine you get a lot of anecdotes as well, right? In terms yes. of what's happened. Really powerful. Tell me a little bit. Are there any that strike you in particular? Um, so there's one in Kenya that um, always strikes. It it, it it always makes me cry. <laughs> so hopefully okay. I'm not going to do that here. No, but, um, Go ahead. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's a podcast. You won't see me if I can. <laughs> All right. Um, so uh, one is it's actually one of our very first learners in Kenya. Um, so she was an orphan. She lost her mother when she was um, a baby, and so grew up in the orphan in, in the orphanage. Was always fighting, always hustling. She um, was forced into a young marriage um, or an early marriage. Um, she had a she had a child. Um, her husband then left her. And so in her 20s, um, she was trying to find a future for herself and for her daughter. And um, she became one of our very first learners in Generation Kenya. 
And um, it was in our financial sales program. And she became, you know, so she went through the program. She was tr- she was placed at one of um, one of the main local banks in Kenya. And after she'd earned enough money, she went back to that same orphanage and she said, okay, I'm going to support two girls here and I'm going to help give them opportunities that I never had when I was growing up here. And I'm going to make my daughter's life better and I'm going to make their lives better. And I just thought, what an amazing level of insight and gratitude and just willingness to give Hmm. to the next generation. Wow. Wow. That must be incredibly rewarding for you and for the team over there. And for our alumni. I mean, it's just, they go through Olympics to get to where they are, right? They make it happen. You know, they are the heroes of this story. Like they, it's unbelievable what, you know, I I can tell you so many stories. I mean, like there's the story of a shoe shiner in Sao Paulo who became a Java developer and what that did for his family, having access to health insurance and what that does in terms of being able to, for, you know, his child to, to, to have a surgery that had long been postponed. Anyway, it's just, there's so many powerful stories. Um, and that's, and that's why we do what we do. What's the website address? If somebody wants to find out more, uh, what's the best way of finding out uh, how to reach you? Generation.org. Excellent. That's easy enough. And you, very impressive background. I looked you up beforehand. Uh, Stanford, MIT. Not surprising that you're giving me all this data. <laughs> 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 what's uh, Give me a little bit of that career uh, trajectory, that personal narrative. Tell, tell us a little bit more about, uh, about you. Um, so I'm Egyptian-American and uh, education played a huge, huge role in the lives of my parents. Um, And in particular with my father, you know, catapulted him through poverty, through all types of disadvantage. It eventually got him a seat at Cairo University that then um, he excelled there and that then enabled him to get a scholarship to study in the US at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, And, you know, I, both my parents just really instilled in me education, education, education. Like that's what's going to get you through. Um, and so that was always with me. Um, and then when I finished at MIT, um, I wanted to make my way back to the Middle East. Um, and so uh, I did and was in the Middle East for several years um, and began working in education, um, but, but with a focus on K-12. And in my mind at the time, it was like, okay, we just need to improve literacy. We need to improve numeracy. They'll graduate. Everything will be fine. You may know that the Middle East has a 40% plus uh, youth unemployment rate. So things were not fine. Um, And that's when I began focusing on that part of the education continuum. So the education to employment journey, which is very broken across the world. Um, One thing led to another and then generation was born. Um, and that's, that's the journey. Um, and it's, uh, it's amazing. We have an amazing set of colleagues across the world who it's really, it's an honor to be able to work side by side with them every day. Wow. Well, Mona, look, it's been an absolute pleasure hosting you on the Do One Better podcast today. And thank you for sharing not just your insight, but also, uh, quite, quite, a, a, I think, a, an emotional side to to the work that you're doing and the value that it's uh, providing 
people are around the world. So I appreciate the work you're doing. I, I wish you continued success on this journey. And I thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Mona Morshed, Chief Executive of Generation. For information about this conversation and about 200 other interviews and case studies with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at Ligi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Thoroughly enjoyed producing today's episode for you. I hope you found it as insightful and informative as I did. And I look forward to catching up with you next week. See you on Monday.